This evening's talk is about compassion, the heartbeat of the Buddhist teaching. And beginning with uh, a quote from American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, and each other's human plight. There's an image in uh, Tibetan Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes. An eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out. A thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I attended a retreat with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and there were about 400 adults and also 30 children there. The children were off each day uh, having their own retreat, but each morning, every morning, they would come in uh, to do a show-and-tell for all of the adults before uh, we began our retreat day. Each morning, they stood up in front of us and in various ways shared what they uh, had been doing and learning during the previous day. So one morning all of the 30 children came into the meditation tent and stood in a long line facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out both their arms with their hands facing us wide open. The palm of each child's hand had an eye painted on it. And then one little boy walked up onto the platform where Tignat Han was uh, sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Tai's hands. That was their whole presentation to us that morning. And it was very touching and inspiring and really very beautiful. So, compassion, karuna in Pali, what is it experientially? About 49 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. Holding him that morning with a very sweet tenderness between us, as he lay very open-eyed and relaxed and quite contented in my arms. And my eyes looking very deeply into his face with a kind of wonderment and curiosity. And I suddenly felt my heart tremble and quiver, the vibration permeating my chest and heart center, and then moving through the whole of my body and my mind, a feeling of 
connection and intimacy with him and with life as a force, so to say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a deep sense that this tiny new being would experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations, many painful bodily and mental experiences within himself. And a wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty. Some tears came that morning while I was holding him, but not the aching tears of the sadness that can come with the feelings of attachment. That morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion. That, yes, this is how it is for all of us, and for him too. That morning's experience has returned many, many times, and in many ways, both as a teaching and as a practice for me, within the enormous gratitude that living immersed in the Dhamma brings to us. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering. Ours or that of another being. Compassion is the heartbeat, we could say, of the Buddha's teaching. It's one of the two wings with which we learn to fly free. The wing of wisdom, of really deeply understanding the not-self nature of all things, and the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings, that, this, that comes from a very deep understanding of dukkha, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness, that runs through most of our lives, knowing its cause and knowing the way of its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, the power to purify mental obscurations, the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, that bind the mind, practice makes us much more keenly aware of and much more sensitive to the suffering in this world. How can we bring our deepening sensitivity, our seemingly new awareness of dukkha into our practice, into this path of liberation? Our practice is grounded in concentration, mindfulness and investigation. Clear and focused mindfulness and the discrimination of states of mind, heart and body. Connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. It also must be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance 
that the heart of metta offers us. A mind, a heart steeped in metta is what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along our way is this, in this training is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult, to compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in this life. Compassion is a very tender, open state. And at the same time, it's a place within us of great strength. Tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to stay present in relationship with whatever is happening within our own body-mind continuum and in relationship to what's going on around us. And not feel overwhelmed by any of it. And so we very gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering. Most of us are pretty strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, to sweep dis-ease under the rug, to hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourselves away by shutting off or maybe going to sleep or distracting ourselves in various ways. Or possibly through ignoring or trivializing suffering so that we don't see or feel the pain in others in the world, so that we don't see and feel our own pain, don't see and feel our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are actually all based in some degree of fear. The fear may be that if we really recognize and connect with and open to the pain, that it might touch in too deeply. It might cause us even more discomfort, more anguish, and maybe it might even be unbearable at some point. The aim of karuna, of compassion practice, is to move towards turning our developing capacity for heartful, unconditional acceptance to very gently turn the mind, turn the heart specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourselves or in relationship to others. And then, with understanding and courage, open to and begin to move towards the alleviation of suffering. Through the purification of the mind, the heart, that practice affords us, over time we really do learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering but rather to begin to feel and know an unobstructed strength of understanding and care and courage 
which is really what gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing concentration, mindful awareness, and investigation, a whole realm of new choices and insights and responses become available to us. We begin to meet and accept what is, which is really the essence of mindfulness that's grounded in metta. And then in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier. True compassion, or boundless compassion as it's often called, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, and ourself included in that. And in our mind, not make ours, uh, our, make others or ourselves more important than each other. Compassion is neither strained nor is it reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform the fear or the anger, the resentment, the disappointment, maybe grief or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality, which in other words can be, as Trogin Trungpa said, a pureless and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other, to dissolve the separation in our direct experience of our body, heart, and mind in an open-hearted and yet at the same time impersonal, not identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this very painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, this duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or our own pain and suffering, so that we're really honestly and truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger and fear and resentment and judgment and unhealthy grief or jealousy or greed. 
I think most of us, or many of us, usually think of mental states or emotional states as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that the most important, helpful, and really true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between reaction and response. Reaction is actually always based in the past. Reaction. Based on past conditioned patterns that are often, very often, rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, or mine. So consequently, they aren't really fully connected to and don't really serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction or reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions, and self-identifications as this is who I am and this is who you are. Compassion is a response, not a reaction. There's a story about Zen master Ryokan, whose brother invited him to visit his house and to speak with his uh, delinquent son. And Ryokan went, of course. But he didn't say any words of admonishment to the boy while he was there. He stayed overnight and prepared to leave early the next morning. And as his wayward uh, nephew was... um, sitting on the ground helping his uncle Ryokan lace up his uh, straw sandals, the boy felt a, a drop of warm water touch his hand. And he glanced up, and he saw that his uncle Ryokan's eyes looking, were looking down at him and were filled with tears. Ryokan returned home and found out that his nephew, very soon after that visit, changed for the better. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna, as we all know, is very challenging. It's often very difficult. It means that we really take the Buddha's words to heart, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And, as we all well know by now, The Buddha wasn't about to go on after that and uh, tell us the best way to suffer. We're all well practiced in that. And of course, nor was he recommending suffering. He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish are all intrinsic to our human condition, or more accurately, These states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. 
what the Buddha was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence. That looking directly, deeply, and honestly at the reality of suffering in our lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it. Which then in turn leads to a transformation and a relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. The suffering of grasping on, of trying to hold tight to some appearing thing, and then solidifying it and identifying it as mine, as me, as who I think I am, be it a material object, some ideas, various opinions, various beliefs, a memory, an emotional state, a bodily experience, thinking of any of these things in any way as permanent and unchanging, and identifying any of it as me, mine, and I, will inevitably and will eventually bring confusion and some degree of anguish. Trying to control, trying to uh, cling on to or push away or avoid any events or any moments of this constantly changing life with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, will eventually bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I found it quite amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced, the particular objects that uh, come into awareness, they don't really change much. Basically, we keep attending to the same body-mind objects, pretty much. It's how we experience them and our relationship to them. That's what changes. And so we find out something really quite astonishing and fortunate about suffering. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As we begin to see clearly, as we continue to climb the mountain, so to say, of compassion and wisdom, and letting the heavy rock of our unskillful, cherished habits and identities roll to the bottom, we're less and less often habitually, blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of suffering of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of kindness, compassion, mindful awareness, concentration, and wisdom really begin to take root and grow. Our heart opens, and we're really, truly beginning 
to awaken. A while ago I received a a letter from a friend and I'd like to share a part of it with you. And these are, this is her, a portion of her letter. Just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this, resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. Life can be so rich and challenging in all of its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion, where does it come from? The seeds of compassion within each one of us have been planted many, many times. Every time we've experienced another being who was willing to be with us, when we were in pain. Every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with. When we've been sick or hurting physically or when we've been in some emotional pain, the seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, Relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of pure presence. These moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart, the particular energy of compassion, and plant the seeds then of this energy in the receiver. And for most of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we in turn plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna with our own heart is watered and fertilized and grows. Every time we 
wholesomely respond rather than react, both internally and outwardly, to a difficult or painful set of circumstances. A seed of compassion is planted, and the seeds of karuna within our own heart grow. And as we all know, sometimes the learning curve can be quite steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourselves asks us to step into what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us to the very core of our being to the very core of our maybe subtle, self-centered agenda. The agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality that we've been living behind maybe for a long time, maybe forever. These learning curves that come our way every once in a while hold the possibility for us to recognize and let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us really the very truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. Looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission. It's a kind of circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission. And we give the transmission to others. And also then, again, to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on it goes, the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I think for many people, an amazing and inspiring contemporary embodiment and transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. In a video about her life and her work, there's a short scene where she stops by the bed of a man who has just been brought in from the street and who's extremely emaciated and sick. And in this, uh, in this film... She gets down very close to him on her knees next to the pallet on the floor and looking directly at him, looking into his eyes. And then she just simply lays her hand over his heart. And he looks directly back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes. It changes completely into light and love for those few moments a few moments of a very gentle and very powerful transmission.
with the heart of compassion. There's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it, or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't stand this. I can't be near it. I can't bear this feeling. And it's really so important when this comes up in the heart, when this comes up in the mind, it's really so important to connect with the aversion itself, with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental acceptance of metta. Meeting the reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising, with open-hearted mindfulness. This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is grief. This is anger. This is judgment. This is what's appearing in this moment. And this is how it is. It's so very important to recognize our limits without self-judgment, however they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. Karuna is never developed by force. It's appropriate and natural to back off from painful experience at times in our practice and in our life as a whole. Kindness, gentleness with ourself is an important and necessary aspect of our practice. This is karuna itself. In relationship to this, I'd like to share a piece um, from a book called An Interrupted Life which is a diary written between 1941 and 1943 by a woman named Eddie Hillesom. Eddie was a 27-year-old Dutch-Jewish woman who, in the midst of the Second World War, lived in a large house with a group of people in Amsterdam, and then, in very bad health, lived in the Westerbrook concentration camp, and then briefly lived in Auschwitz, where she was exterminated, on November 30th in 1943. Amazingly, these years of great suffering throughout Europe were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and paradoxically enough, a time of personal liberation for her. In the midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe, We could say Eddie wrote the counter-scenario. Her diary is quite an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense extreme difficulty. And this is from Eddie's diary. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. 
lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast, empty plain, with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view, so that something of God can enter you, and something of love, too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour taking pride in how sublime you feel. But the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then at another point in the diary, Eddie wrote, Mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Eddie, with her clear vision, instinctively knew that she wouldn't return from the camps. And she asked uh, a friend to keep her diaries. She knew that she wanted to leave some trace behind to share the solutions that she had found for her life. And this is from the last entry of her diary. Ever since last night, I have been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured endured all over the world, to accommodate a little of the great sorrow the coming winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable... Is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer, she said. And she ends her diary with this. We should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. That's her last line. Survivors from the camp have confirmed that Eddie was a luminous and compassionate personality to the very last. It's very important to stay mindful in the moving away from and the coming close to, the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental and physical and situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object that we give mindful attention to in our practice, our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently then, our relationship to the object will also change. We need to learn to befriend ourselves, 
to come close and see how it is. See how it really is. It may be a strong and intense energy, but it's not at all static or solid. Can we come so close with the great intimacy of our practice to see how it really is? Can we come so close, grounded in the heart connection of acceptance and with a growing compassion, and see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience, see them really truly in themselves, and begin to be able to see through them, to see through these colors, even the strongest of colors. If a really dear friend comes to us with their troubles, we usually give them our attention and we give them our care in some way. We don't usually tell them to, tell them to stop feeling whatever it is they're feeling or tell them to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. Our practice teaches us how to befriend ourselves, which quite naturally leads to the development and the blossoming of a connection with all beings. We come to really truly know that the pain in our heart or the pain in our back essentially isn't any different than the pain in the heart or the back of any other being anywhere in this world. I think for many of us, our hand quite naturally and quite spontaneously often reaches out to soothe the ache in our foot or our back or the ache in our heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this very same simple, natural way? Essentially, this is due to a very deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea of a separate self, spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall in the range of who we think of as mine. And sometimes there may be some degree of indifference or maybe even a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of the range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, There's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and understanding grows, connection and empathy quite naturally blossom. And our sense of being a closed cell dissolves. And it's not that I or me vanishes into some bottomless hole of nothingness. Instead, 
what we discover is that we're really, truly, and simply a cell that forms part, and to quote Stephen Batchelor, part of an interdependent, multicellular organism of existence itself. As wisdom blossoms, our way of being in and with conventional reality is transformed. We come to know experientially that I, the sense of I, only exists in relationship to you. I, me, isn't eliminated. Me is transformed. There's only relationship. I, me, you, them, us, have never and will never exist in isolation, have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notions of me and you, the seemingly fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you, begin to dissolve with the blossoming of unconditional acceptance, metta, and karuna, compassion. And in relationship to the way that we go about life, how we relate in life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally, more and more often. And we begin to understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. And some words from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do when both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain. What's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we all know, it's not so easy. This relating to others and to ourself with the clarity of a pure, compassionate heart. As we have many old and seemingly new personal agendas, we have many deeply conditioned, habituated patterns. I think that for many people there's some confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be described as an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and unhealthy grief, are what are called the near enemy or what looks like, what masquerades as compassion. 
Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a really true, open-hearted, caring presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal, if we look really, really carefully. When we pity, there's a subtle, or really maybe not so subtle, wanting it to be different. And also maybe some feeling that, I'm really glad it's not me that's suffering so much. So a kind of tinge, or maybe a slight flavor of arrogance that's actually a cover-up for our fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy or the unwholesome component, we could say, of grief is fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self-obsessed energy. And it can lead one into depression if it goes unnoticed. One can get caught and lost in the downward spiral of this strong and very deep contraction. Which, if we really clearly see it, we find that it's a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you. Certainly me, and sometimes a you as well. This fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unrecognized, unhealthy grief. And when we feel pity in ourself for ourself, or when we're caught in the self-obsession of an unhealthy grief, in those moments we're actually not experiencing any really true caring or kindness or compassion for ourselves, But rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling. That heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves, That poor me with a capital M-E feeling. And in this place there's really not much, if any, capacity at that point to act towards taking care of ourself. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental, mindful awareness, can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind? Letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, myself as a pitiable, pitiful person. But rather the possibility of, here's pity, here's grief, this is what's arising. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am, but it's come up. How is it? How is it feeling? How is it acting? How is it? Mindfulness and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening. And in the seeming magic 
that can happen when they work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what may feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment and in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my diary that comes from my participation in the first Bearing Witness retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in Poland in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I will take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman has organized the first bearing witness retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that is palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewers, open sewer living spaces of the so-called prisoners. The shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness, as it's a far less familiar feeling, and thus much less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation. Until one afternoon, I find myself alone on my knees in front of an, in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes. Om Mane Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion, the jewel in the heart of the lotus, quite spontaneously repeats out loud over and over again from my heart for the Nazis. A deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, 
let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this totally unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion. Not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each one of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, each one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourself. And the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause great suffering for others, as happened to such an extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days at Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all of the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland, this story was put into a newsletter that the Taos New Mexico Meditation Group sent out. And I'd like to share uh, a a response that I received from one of my Israeli students who um, has also been very involved in Israeli-Palestinian peacework. I was deeply touched reading in your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of the people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a train, night train, from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins veins froze. After a while, I fell asleep again and had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag, put them on the ground, and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I am too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect to what you experienced. I felt it very important for me to be able to make such a transition. 
A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both of his hands. Excuse me, her English isn't. A young man with guns in both of his hands, a flag and the book of Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life have no meaning for him. I began to cry. Then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. And so the two wings of awakening with which we fly free, the wing of wisdom that comes through our experiential insight into the impermanent, the unsatisfactory, and the not-self nature of all conditioned things. The other wing being the unconditional compassion, being unconditional compassion our heartfelt connection to beings and our way of being in the world that ensues from this. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers all the way back to the Buddha, this heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the wing of the Buddha's great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it really interesting and helpful and also inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself, his speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. In one of his discourses, we find him with a small group of bhikkhus, sharing with them what his thoughts were very soon after his awakening. This Dhamma that I have ta- this is the, these are the Buddha's words. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And then the Buddha goes on to say, considering thus my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. 
Then he tells his monks that soon after this, a certain Brahmin came to him and pleaded and said, the world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, accomplished, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the the Buddha goes on with his monks and says, Then I listened to the Brahmin's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and with bad habits. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, open for them are the doors to the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the Dhamma, the subtle and sublime. So this wing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and itself obviously also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and so clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self to the relative nature of our humanness. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with a piece from... um, a former student of mine. It's from an unfinished book of his. Uh, He died of AIDS-related complications before he was able to finish this book. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat. Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day, I make my two-hour drive to the retreat center. A splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. The retreat schedule looks daunting from 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day, and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. 
By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending all of the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we were asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? Is pra- in practice, is holding onto the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And vipassana is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last full day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center. My heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life. The suffering and the beauty. All of it being held, but not held onto. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.